Thank you, Jamie and musicians. Let's pray as we consider this text this morning. Our Father, as we we just saying, we are weak, you are mighty. We acknowledge that to be the, the position that we're in. And so we ask that your power would come to us in our weakness, that we would receive it, and be made more able to live as you've called us to live. To live in light of your grace towards us. To live obediently. We pray that that would happen as we consider the power of your word, of this text of scripture that we have here in the life of Abraham. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a, there's a group called DARPA. They are an agency of the American government, and they focus on helping us kind of stay at the cutting edge to defend ourselves militarily, oftentimes. Um, One of their latest projects is to figure out how to put an end to all pandemics. We probably see why, right? And so um, they they are trying to to do that, and they believe that they're not too far off from it. Uh, And they put out a call If you remember when COVID started, the medical community, the researchers and folks that were sort of telling us what we needed to solve this problem of the pandemic, they said we need a vaccine. And the soonest we can get a vaccine is like 12 to 18 months. So like a year to year and a half would be like lightning speed to get a vaccine created and distributed to the world. What DARPA is trying to do right now is figure out how to develop a vaccine in 60 days. 60 days. And so they put a call out to the experts, medical researchers, doctors, and said, help us produce a vaccine in 60 days. And the response of of the medical community, they laughed. It's impossible. You can't do that. And listen to what Matthew Hepburn, he's the director of of DARPA, of this project of DARPA. Listen to what he said. If the experts are laughing at you, and saying it's impossible, you're in the right space. DARPA's working in the space it's supposed to work. If, if we pitch an idea and they laugh and say, impossible, no way it's going to happen. That's how we know we're working kind of in the right space. That's what DARPA does. I'll give you another example. In the movie Ford vs. Ferrari, uh, Carol Shelby, played by Matt Damon, is working with Ford to try to produce a car, a Ford, that can beat Ferrari. And Ken Miles, a racer, uh, Shelby's pitching this to, to, to Ken Miles, played by Christian Bale. And Ken Miles hears this plan. He's like, he laughs. He's like, you can't, there's no way you can do that with a Ford. And then Carol Shelby says, no, and, but we're going to do it in 90 days. He's like, it's impossible. Now, why does, why does Ford and DARPA like to work in the space where when they pitch their idea, people laugh. Experts laugh and say it's impossible. Here's why. Because by doing that, and if they succeed, they're demonstrating glory. They're, they're, they're demonstrating a surprising glory. Nobody expects that DARPA can produce a vaccine in 60 days. But if they can do it, all medical glory be to DARPA. If, if Ford can produce a car in 90 days that can beat Ferrari, then all automotive glory be to Ford. That's what it does. It brings glory to these 
thing, these, these companies and agencies. God is glory. And what, what does that mean? That, that sounds kind of difficult to even... What, what exactly does that mean? God is glory. It means that God is perfectly glorious, infinitely perfect in all of His, His, His ways. And He's perfect in His wisdom. He's perfectly powerful. He's perfectly loving. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly merciful. He's perfectly gracious. God is glory. And so, not surprisingly, God likes to work in that space too. He likes to work in the space where people hear what He's going to do and they laugh. They say it's impossible. And that's what we have this morning in our text. God makes these promises to Abraham that are impossible. And Abraham laughs and says to himself, there's no way this is going to happen. This can't happen. It's impossible. And God says, no, it's going to happen. It's going to happen in a year. In one year, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be seeing the impossible. It's the space that God likes to work in because it leaves no doubt that God is in it, that God is the one working, that all glory be to God. And so as we consider this text this morning, we're going to consider two things, the scope and the nature of God's work in the life of Abraham, and by extension, our lives, right? Remember the song? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. Like, we, God's work in the life of Abraham is really similar to God's work in our lives, because he's our father, our spiritual father. And so we're going we're gonna to see the scope and nature of God's work in our lives as well, okay? So, scope and nature of God's work. Um, okay, so let's, let's, let's begin with the scope, the scope of God's work. Thirteen years have passed since the previous chapter, chapter 16. Because if you remember last time we saw Abraham, he's, um, he's married his, uh, Sarah's servant, Hagar, and he, she's pregnant now with Ishmael. She's on the run. She comes back. Thirteen years later, Abraham is, uh, is pushing a hundred. Sarah's ninety. And that little baby Ishmael is now 13 years old. Think of that. 13 years Abraham has been loving this only child that he's had, Ishmael. He's been putting him to bed with stories of God's faithfulness. He's been teaching him how to shoot a bow and arrow. He's been teaching him how to ride a horse, a war horse. He's been teaching him how to ride a camel. He's been, he's, Abraham has been raising Ishmael for 13 years. Okay? And, and, that's, and that's where we are. So a lot of time has passed. And God appears to Abraham in verse 1. And look at what he says. I am El Shaddai. El Shaddai. I am God Most High. Remember the Amy Grant song, El Shaddai? I am God Most High. That's what El Shaddai means. That's the, that's the literal Hebrew, Hebrew uh, word there. God Almighty. And God says, walk before me. And be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And look at what Abraham does. He falls on his face, verse 3. And God gives him a new name. And what does he say? He says, I'm going to name you. You go from Abram to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. We said a few weeks ago that some commentators like to paraphrase it. Big Daddy. That's his name. Big Daddy. Abraham. 
But the irony is that he's no daddy right now, at least not with Sarah. And so there's, there's a bit of an irony, right? Father of many nations is father to none, except for Ishmael, but wrong line, right? So that's his name. And then God gives a sign. These covenants of God often are, are almost always accompanied with, with signs. Covenants oftentimes are. Remember Noah? God promises not to bring a flood on the earth. And, and what, is, uh, what sign does God give to Noah as a reminder that he will no longer destroy the earth completely in a flood? It's the sign of the rainbow. Uh, when you get married, you, make a, you enter into a covenant with your spouse, a promise. And there's a ring that accompanies that covenant, isn't there? It's, it's, the, it's a band, the wedding band, the ring. It's a sign. And here we have the sign of circumcision. And we may think, well, that's a strange sign. You know, I often think that. It'd be much, it'd be much easier if every, time I didn't, every time I talked about circumcision, I didn't have to detail male sexual anatomy. That would be preferred for me personally. So why do I have to do that? Why, 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 why circumcision? It's so strange. Look, the sign makes a lot of sense. It's going gonna, it's gonna to tell us like the scope and the nature of God's work. The sign points to the scope and the nature of God's work in Abraham's life and by extension our lives. So, so let me explain. Hang with me. God says, he said, walk before me. We have a Latin phrase, coram Deo. Uh, coram Deo, live before the presence of God. That's the scope. Abraham's call is to live before God. And it makes sense because if God is El Shaddai, God Most High, then it only makes sense that all of life would be in orbit around God. If God is the God of the river, then only Abraham's life around the river fishing and collecting water. Then he, he owes allegiance to that God at that point in time. But then he goes to the fertility gods when it comes to pregnancy, when it comes to, um, when it comes to crops, when it comes to other aspects of life. See, polytheism, there, you, you segment your relationship with the gods because the gods are over different spheres. So you kind of ignore the river god when you're dealing with non-river activities. You see the, the logic? And God is saying, I am El Shaddai. I'm God most time. I'm, I'm over everything. Therefore, you live all of your life to me. You walk before me. One commentator puts it this way. God orders Abraham to live his life before God in such a way that every single step of his life is made with reference to God. And every day experiences God close at hand. Circumcision points to that reality. In Abraham's most private, in Abraham's most intimate moments, he looks down and lo and behold, God's mark is upon him. In the bedroom, in the bathroom, there's no escaping God's mark on Abraham. God is saying, look, you, you can't escape me. I am El Shaddai, God Most High. There is no place you can go where you can leave my presence. So walk before me in your private lives, in your private part of your life, in your intimate part of your life. Coram Deo. Live before the presence of God Almighty. El Shaddai demands it. There's no area of life that doesn't belong to God. And this is important for us to remember. 
we have, um, well, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, uh, Christian Smith wrote a book looking at the spiritual, he's a sociologist, he wrote a book looking at the spiritual lives of American teenagers, and he, he makes a lot of points, but one of the points he makes in that book, he says, it, uh, teenagers, if they're, whether they're Christian or Protestant or Catholic or uh, Jewish or Muslim or Mormon, whatever faith background, they're, they're, they're belie- the God that they believe in tends to be the same, and he described it as moralistic therapeutic deism. They're, they're all moralistic therapeutic deists, and what, what does he mean by that? Well, he means that they believe in a God that wants them to be a decent person, to live kind of a roughly moral life, moralistic. God's real priority is that, the, is that they feel good about themselves. That's the therapeutic piece. He cares that you feel really good about yourself. And God is, you know, he's mostly just very removed from your life until like calamity strikes or a crisis comes into your life. Then he, he swoops in and he kind of helps, helps at that point. So de- deist, right? He's, he's, he's far removed from us. He's not, he's not involved in our lives. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And here's the thing. He was describing teenage spirituality and belief in God. I think what he said applies to the whole spectrum. That, that's, that tends to be the God, by default, that we believe, on, believe in just by virtue of being an American culture. We're moralistic, therapeutic deists. And on top of that... We live in a, a world that kind of tends to slice and dice our experience in these little compartments that seem to have no connection or relationship to one another. And that further sort of pulls God out of those other spheres. And so El Shaddai, God Most High, becomes El Sunday or, or even just El Uno Hour on a Sunday, right? Just one little hour on a Sunday, the God of one hour on a Sunday or El Crisis, the God of my crisis. So when everything's great, eh. But when crisis strikes, oh, L crisis, come into my life. Or L children, we, we've, we've, we've got kids, you know. We, I grew up, we grew up going to the church. I, I don't really care about college and single, all that. And, you know, God didn't matter. But I kind of want my kids to have like a, a faith in God. That'd be nice. So let's go to church. He's the God of my children. And so we kind of bring him in. God is saying, I'm El Shaddai, I'm God Most High. You can't, you can't get out of my presence. You can't get away from I'm, all of life. Must be lived in orbit around me. It's just the nature of the universe because he's at the center of the universe. If we want to live in step with that dance of the universe, we've got we've to walk before God. That's what God is saying to Abraham. And he's, it's what he's saying to us as well. Do you exalt him as El Shaddai, as God, over every piece of your life, over your sexuality? Over your politics, over your work. See the God over your family. See the God of your purchasing patterns and habits. Listen to what J.I. Packer says. What Abraham needed most of all was to learn the practice of living in God's presence. Of seeing all of life in relation to God. And looking to God. And God alone as commander, defender, and rewarder. And we need the same. God is El Shaddai, God Most High. So that's the scope of God's work in our lives. And the answer is it goes to everything. Everything we do. And so we owe God the full scope of our own lives. Okay, that's the scope. Now let's look at the second point, which is the nature of the work that God is doing. 
And, you know, signs say a lot. We talk about baptism, and there's a lot to explain when we talk about baptism. There's a lot of symbolism, a lot being pointed to in that sign. There's a lot being pointed to in the the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we talk about every week, different aspects of it. And so it is with circumcision. The sign is saying a lot. And we get a clue to the nature of God's work in the sign. We're going to try to explore that here in just a second. Here's another piece of our culture. We believe in the world, it's just sort of taught to us through Disney and many other mediums, um, that if just, just follow your heart. That's the goal. If you follow your heart, you'll find flourishing, personal, familial, corporate even, somehow, flourishing. If you follow your heart, that's the goal. And the scriptures say, no, the heart is deceitful above all things. If you follow your heart, you're going to be following a lie. That's what the scriptures say. And circumcision points to that. Because what circumcision says is, we're not okay, naturally. We're not born right. We need an adjustment. We need a surgery. Now, the sign of circumcision was pointing to the circumcision of the heart. Throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, that's clear. Okay? Um, And so that sign is pointing to the need of a more fundamental core change of our heart, a supernatural change that we need, a circumcision of the heart. Let's look look at verses 15 and following. God said to Abram, Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but you shall call her Sarah. That will be your name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face, and what does he do? He laughs and says to himself, he's saying to himself, right? Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? There's this moment in Father of the Bride, part two, where the grandparents, Steve Martin, and um, oh, I can't think of her name, but the, the, his wife, um, are, find out that they're pregnant, and there's like a shock, because of their own children who's just gotten, their child who's gotten married is having a baby, and now they're having a baby, and they're thinking, we're a little old for this, and he's viewing the street and all the young parents kind of wrestling with their young children, and he's just like overwhelmed, and he's thinking, this is, this is going to be laughable. Me, grandparents, with a baby. Abraham's having that moment right here. He's, he's thinking to himself, this is crazy. This is impossible. This is not, I'm, I'm not getting any younger, right? Like 100 years old, that's a, a lot of work ahead of him. Now, there's all sorts of thoughts going on, but he's thinking those things. And then look at verse 19. God said, oh, uh, and then verse 18. So he's, he's under his breath, he's saying these things. And then he says to God, verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What about Ishmael? It's it's, paraphrase. We've got Ishmael. I've been raising him right. 13 years. And God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. 
But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you in one year. God is working in the space of the impossible. He's working in that space that DARPA likes to work in, where the experts start laughing and say, you can't do it. That's where God's operating right now. And, you know, we've said this before. It's, it's worth repeating. In the ancient Near East, for, for, uh, a woman's identity and value was rooted in their ability to have children. This is the way it was. In fact, if you weren't able to have children, uh, you were believed to be cursed by the gods. The woman who had children and sons and many sons they, was blessed by the gods. And the, the woman with no children was cursed by the gods. And here God is saying, Sarah, your wife Sarah, who has struggled no doubt with nights of tears and crying and shame and a weight of a culture that sees, just sees her as waste, discard. God is saying, I am going to make nations come forth from her, from her womb, who everybody else rejected, everybody else discarded. Not only will it be nations, but it's going to be, it's going to be a people of, of life. It's going to be the nation through whom all the other nations are blessed. The most important nation in planet Earth will come through you guys, who nobody believed could bring forth anything, much less a nation or a, or, or a, a blessed people. And this gets us, oh, and let me say this too. They're both pushing the three-digit mark, and of course, Abraham laughs, right? He's laughing a laugh of, like, incredulity. There's no way. This is crazy. You can't do this. He's, there's probably all kinds of things behind the laugh, right? And God is saying, I want you to name him laughter. Because I want you to remember when you laughed, when you, when you uh, heard this, and that, the laughs of that are going to be replaced with laughs of joy, with laughs of celebration, with laughs of awe that this has actually happened. So name him laughter, and every time you look at Isaac, you're going to think, God does the impossible. This is the space where God works. And what he's doing in this covenant and in this promise of Isaac is he's getting us to the heart of the matter. God's work in the world is not just a few minor adjustments. He's not copying and pasting a few things and moving them around. He's not touching things up. He's not providing a little makeover. He's building a new creation. And if the world laughs and says it's impossible, that's the space where God likes to work. Think about it. He's bringing about a new people out of a people that will give life to the world out of the, the death of Sarai's womb, the barrenness of Sarai's womb, the emptiness, the void of Sarai's womb. He's bringing out a people of life, a people that will bring blessing and life to the world. And this work of God, it looks down through the generations. Remember back when uh, God cursed the serpent and said uh, that someone coming out of the line of Eve, a son of Eve, would crush the head of the serpent? From that point forward, the text, the whole book of Genesis has been preoccupied with that question of who, who's going to be the one? Is it going to be um, Abel? Is it going to be Seth? Is it going to be all, all these characters? We're wondering, who, who is God going to 
and, and we get a big clue when he calls Abraham. And we get a big clue right here. The one through whom God is going to accomplish his salvific purposes is going to come through Sarah. It's going to be Isaac and his children. And that's what God is saying here. And as the scriptures unfold, we're going to continue to look down through the generations. And so here, here's, here's my point. Circumcision not only points to the need for, for, for the nature of the change, it also points to the fact, the fact that it's on the, the male procreative organ is pointing to the fact that we're looking down the line. We're looking down Abraham's seed, Isaac's seed, the pe- Judah's seed. With every book of the book, we get clues as to where this, this son of David is going to come. You see, you, see, you see the logic of the circumcision. It's a mark. It's God's mark. And it's looking forward to the, genera- to the generation when God would send his son. And he, he is, he's building a new kingdom and he's building it through his son, Jesus. He's building this kingdom of life and light through the death of his son, who, by the way, was also miraculously conceived, just like Isaac. And bursting forth from the tomb, the, our resurrected Lord came out and life personified. Right? And he's, he, he's, he's, he's spreading that life across the fatalities of sin and rebellion, and he's giving life to all. Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and in chapter 2 says that resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead is also at work in you. He said, in fact, it's already been performed in you. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you were dead in your sins. Verse 4 of chapter 2, Ephesians, he says, but God made you alive in Christ. That's what he's doing. He's bringing dead things to life. He's bringing dead wombs, barren wombs, empty wombs, and he's bringing life out of them. He's taking de- empty tombs, or tomb, not empty tombs, tombs with the stench of death in them, and he's bringing life out of them. That's, what God, that's the space that God works in, the space of the impossible. Imagine, imagine a super, it's a Super Bowl. And both teams are there for the game, and the game's about to start. They flip the coin, and suddenly and unexpectedly, every member of one of the teams dies. There's no, we don't know, maybe they ate poisonous food at dinner. We, we don't know what happened, but they're all just dead on the sideline. Who do you think is going to win that game? The other team? Well, is the game even going to be played, I guess, was maybe a better question. God says, I'm going to take the team that's dead on the sidelines, and I'm going to build my kingdom through that group. I'm going to build a championship team with that bunch, with that lot. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. That's the nature of the work that he's doing. So let me ask you, what makes you laugh? What seems impossible to you? Maybe it's, is it getting, maybe it's getting pregnant. There's a, there's a couple in our congregation that um, had difficulty getting pregnant. And they, they asked the church, City Press, the church from which we came, um, our mother church, to pray this impossible prayer that they would uh, conceive. And they, they now have two children in our, in our nursery right now. The church prayed, and God answered their prayers. What is it 
that seems impossible to you. Maybe it's a child or a friend coming to faith. Maybe it's uh, overcoming an addiction or a spouse breaking free from addictive habits. Maybe, you, maybe it's financial stability. You just can't quite seem to get that part of your life in order. It seems impossible. Bring these things to God. Maybe there's a whole area of your, a whole arena of your life that you never bring to God in prayer because you don't want to venture into the space of the impossible. You don't think that God works there. And it's, it's the space where He likes to work, where He prefers to work. That's where He wants to work, and He's been working in that space since the dawn of time. So take, take whatever that impossible prayer is, take it to God. He will act. He can and He will. And the passage this week tells us He can. The passage last week tells us He will. Remember last week when uh, Hagar describes God? What does she call Him? He's God most high in this passage. He's God over everything. He has all power. He can do anything He pleases. But will He? Hagar says, yes, he's the God who sees. He's the God who sees the Egyptian slave girl and takes care of her and loves her and sends her back so that she can be blessed through the, through the blessing of Abraham, even though there may be some abuse in that home. He's the God who sees. God can and he will help us. Let me, let me read this quote again from James Montgomery Boyce last week. We read it about God seeing us. He sees our difficulty He sees our hearts. He sees what we believe to be the impossible. He says, are you aware that God sees you right where you are? He does. He sees you as you are, where you are. He sees where you've come from, where you're going. He sees what you need and what you don't need. And above all, he sees what he wants to make of you. And how that final glorious product is to be achieved. You can't see it. But it is precisely for that reason that you must lay aside your own wisdom and return to the path God has given you to walk in. God likes to work in the space of the impossible because it brings glory to Him. It's His space to churn out His people who would inhabit and rule His perfected world order, the new creation. And He's helping us... Our, What he's doing right here in this passage is he's helping us, God is helping us to see what a great God he is. That he orders things according to him, not according to us. If Abraham had his call, Sarah would have had a baby right off the bat and they would have raised, he would have been 20-something years. But that's not how God works. He has a wisdom that exceeds our own. Pastor Scott Sauls says that one square millimeter of God, one square millimeter of God weighs more than the whole universe. That within one square millimeter of God, there is way more glory than all the glory contained within the the whole universe. God is glory. And He's demonstrating His glory to the world by the way in which He's making these promises come to fruition. Miraculously. Impossibly. And He's doing it. It's the nature of his work. And the scope of the work is to everything, all that we are. He's, he's, he's taking all of you. He's taking every pore in your body, every bone, every hair on your head, every cell in you. And he's completely transforming you into a new creation. That's the nature of the work. Scope, 
all of you, nature completely new person. Glorious people. His people. But I know one of the difficulties on the road to perfection and glory is how can we be confident that he's actually sticking with us? How can we be confident that he's not going to give up on us? I want you to look at verse 14. Look at what it says. It says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The sign uh, is a sign of blessing, but it's also, strangely, a sign of, can be a sign of judgment for the person that is circumcised and breaks the covenant and leaves God, leaves the faith. They're now cut off from the people. For the person that hasn't been cut off, they're cut off from the people of God. And this is a tension in the whole Old Testament. God has these promises and and this covenant faithfulness on the one hand, and he demands covenant faithfulness from his people. But does Israel, the people of Israel, are they faithful? No. Like the whole Old Testament, they're constantly floundering and rebelling and turning to idolatry. So what gives? What gives? The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch give. Remember? Remember just two chapters, two weeks ago we talked about it? God's covenant in chapter 15 where he makes these promises to Abraham and they do a blood path ceremony where Abraham rips the animals apart and makes two rows. And it sounds violent, but it's a violent age that we're in, so we got to kind of sympathize with that a little bit. So there's blood in the middle. And did Abraham have to walk that path to say, if I fail... Uh, My destiny will be the destiny of these animals. He didn't. God did. As represented by the pot and the torch. And what God is saying is, if I fail, my destiny will be the destiny of these animals. I won't. But if you fail, my destiny will be the result of these animals. And as Jesus hung there upon the cross, he was bringing that to fruition, that truth. He was being faithful. Jesus, who was circumcised on the eighth day, lived a perfect life, perfectly faithful to God. When he was in the garden, he didn't want to be faithful to God. He said, if, this, if you can let this cup pass, let it pass. I don't want to do this. It's too difficult for me. He said, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. And as he hung there upon the cross, he was circumcised on our behalf. He was cut off. He was cut off from his people. They're the ones who put him on the cross, and he was alone. His disciples abandoned him. And he was cut off from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took on himself the penalty of covenant breaking so that we might get all the covenant blessings. That's the gospel. That's what he did for us. And I know that you're weary. Abraham was no doubt weary in life. Life had no doubt worn him down. And what God says to him is, I've got a plan. And what he says to us as well is, I've got a plan that's going to blow your mind. It will. You laughing at the the impossible, it's going to be real. And you're going to laugh with joy about it. That's his plan for us as well. That he turns laughter of incredulity to laughter of joy and celebration. But it happens in his time. Listen to what Herman Bovink, the, the 
Dutch theologian says, and we'll close with this. He says, God makes everything beautiful in his time. He makes everything happen at the right moment, at the moment that he has fixed for it. So that history in its entirety and in its parts corresponds perfectly to the counsel of God and exhibits the glory of that counsel. Bob Vink is saying there's a time where everything on this planet, souls in Pakistan, elephants in India, ants in El Salvador, grizzlies in Alaska, you and me in Oklahoma City, all of creation is going to one day explode in the glory of God. Perfectly, exhaustively, and it's going to happen no sooner and no later than God wills it in his perfect time. And those who laugh at those promises, they'll realize. Those who trust in those promises, their faith will be sight. That's the promises of God to us. In the meantime, we walk in faith, trusting that what God did in the life of Abraham, he will do for all of creation. That's his promise. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for these promises. We don't even, as we said at the outset of this sermon, we are weak, you are strong. So help us in our weakness to believe them. Help us to see them. We get so locked in on the present that we so rarely um, lean into these promises. Help us to do that. We pray that these things in Jesus' name, and we pray that you would do it by the power of your Spirit. Amen.